Kiora, Kofusmitho, Namakitafari, welcome to the House. At first glance, you might surmise that all the MPs do all week at Parliament is blame each other for the world's ills, order a surfeit of Teslas, and sadly, occasionally see their careers vanish unexpectedly. But despite the impression you might get from the news, there's a lot more to an MP's job than calculating rebates. For example, at the moment, MPs are knee-deep in an annual oversight event called the Estimates Hearings. Nā mihi nui ki a koutou tēnei tamihi o te wā. Um, uh, warm Pacific greetings, Minister, and your officials. Thank you so much for coming before us today. Um, During Estimates Hearings, it feels like you can't walk into any room in Parliament House without stumbling into a committee of MPs grilling a minister. The committees hold them back-to-back and simultaneously, like a combination of Glastonbury and the Inquisition. For example, here's National's Paul Goldsmith asking Michael Wood what some might describe as a question. My supposition is that instead of getting on with this important work, um, you have had uh, all the policy uh, money and focus on your ideological crusade around um, the fair pay agreements uh, as a priority. And so first question is what's going on with the Holidays Act and why hasn't that been the priority? By the way, you're unlikely to hear any entire questions or answers in this episode of the House. The reason being is that both the questions and answers tend to be so amazingly long you would need a calendar to time them. MPs are not known for brevity. Policy work in both of those areas were done by different teams. Um, so there's been no trade-off uh, between the two. There's been a highly specialised team working on the Holidays Act reform uh, over the last last few years. Um, secondly, the, the main reason why it has taken a little longer than we would have liked it to is the principle of measure twice and cut once. Um, the policy decisions have been made around this, so it's not actually a question of policy. The estimates hearings range in duration between 30 minutes and an hour and a half. They are more or less a performance review with a large group of overseers, some of whom want you sacked and are not subtle about it. It's like a question time anxiety dream. It does have a purpose though. The estimates hearings are the next phase of Parliament's consideration of the budget that Grant Robertson announced back in mid-May. I move that the appropriation 2023-24 estimates bill be now read. Once the House gets given the budget, it is passed to the Finance and Expenditure Committee, who divide it up by topic and dole it out among Parliament's 12 subject select committees. Each committee then sends off hundreds of questions to the various ministers about all of the plans within their purview. And now, with the answers in hand, they dig further. But this time, in person. I know that the Crown's going to borrow for KO now, but there's still debt sitting on the KO balance sheet now, right? For existing market debt. So it has a debt-to-equity ratio of around 20.1%, I think, off the top of my head. Um, so the borrowing that we've done in the last few years has been around $8 billion. We've added to the assets of around um, $8 billion as well, so it's kind of been tracking with the asset growth in terms of keeping that debt-to-equity ratio pretty much at an equilibrium. I'll just ask if there's anything that officials want. I don't think there's much of any rollover between Andrew yeah. and I, but we can confirm yeah. that. We'll confirm it. And we'll Maybe confirm. it's one for written questions, yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah. And as you heard in that interchange between Nationals Chris Bishop and Labor's Megan Woods, after the Viva Voce, there will be another blizzard of written questions, as committees get yet more details on each minister's plans. This is as it should be. Our form of government is referred to as a responsible government. It means that the government is responsible to the parliament and they are the ones really in charge. 
I spent a couple of days this week skipping from room to room and sitting in on some of the dozens of estimates hearings. Anyone can attend or watch them streamed live. It's an interesting thing to do, and everyone is different. They also cover a vast array of information. Here's Megan Woods responding to a question about Kainga Order State Housing in flood-prone areas. So if we look at the developments in Roskill, if we look at the developments in Northcote, um, actually uh, we saw drainage uh, where we'd done substantial stormwater upgrades as part of the redevelopments that we were doing. We saw Northcote drain in 15 hours. Um, Neighbourhoods that had previously flooded um, didn't because there had been that stormwater upgrade as part of the rebuild. Likewise, some of the stuff that we funded um, early on in terms of the infrastructure upgrades required to do the Roskill intensification had stopped parts of those neighbourhoods flooding as well. Um, and it's quite a remarkable story. One of the things that often surprises me with ministers is just how much data they keep in their heads. And that's true of the best MPs from any party. To do their jobs well, they need a prodigious capacity to store and retrieve information. It's worth noting that ministers seldom arrive alone. They usually bring a coterie of senior officials from the relevant ministry to be able to add any extra detail, and sometimes associate ministers as well, because some ministers have more junior ministers who manage aspects of their portfolio. Megan Woods, for example, was flanked by Green co-leader Marama Davidson and her Labour colleague Barbara Edmonds, who added to that answer on the flood questions. Tona, Cadness, Lake Road was a block that historically used to flood a lot. Yep. But what has happened is through the regeneration project in Northcote, they have built basically a lake off of Lake Road, yeah. and then that basically drains the water that would have flooded the area, and that was only built because of the Northcote regeneration mm. programme. So it's definitely one that I would encourage you to go have a look at if you haven't already, and yeah. you would know Karen being a local yeah. in that area. Actually, that estimates hearing was one of my faves this week. Ideally, Opposition MPs are well-versed with the budget they're inquiring about and able to test the minister's plans and their grasp of their portfolio. Ideally, they discover things they didn't know before and new areas they might like to delve deeper into. Well-informed backbenchers are just as crucial as well-informed ministers. I mentioned that, like Soros, ministers don't come alone. The same is true of the committees. They are a moving feast of MPs, especially on the opposition side, as MPs swap in and out to make sure that the experts on any topic are present. The main rule about estimates hearings, and one constantly stretched and broken, is that it's meant to be about the estimate, the budget. Good luck with that. Okay. Andrew, can I just remind you also, we're here for the estimates, so yeah, yeah. forward as yeah. well, please. Estimates, is this a yeah, I know. The vote? In reality, it's not even always about questions. Sometimes MPs want to raise an issue for constituents or for other interests. Um, with the climate disclosure agreements, when you start talking to people, um, they're really saying that they're not in a position to put them in place and they're asking for a delay by a year. Have you got any uh, view on whether in fact it should be a delay? Because it's not an issue of not wanting to do it, it's an issue of capability, that's what I'm hearing a lot. 
look, well, I would um, invite those people to talk to um, me in my office about any uh, difficulties they may be having. Those standards, you know, let, let's have a discussion. But I haven't heard any of those noises myself, and okay. I wouldn't speak to you. Well, I, I, I'll happily transfer and, and pass those details on to you, because that's what I'm hearing. It's not an issue of not wanting to do it, just saying literally it's a capability issue. So that's what I'm hearing. So. I'm glad you've noted that, and I'll pass it on. Next one... Um and surprise, surprise, sometimes it's just an opportunity for political statements or point scoring. And you can't tell a committee what the projected uh, amount will be spent on contractors and consultants over the next 12 months. Uh, well, I've, I've responded to both those questions. And I've said... That was Simeon Brown to Andrew Little, who is Minister for the Public Service. Because Parliament is Parliament, just like in question time, sometimes a friendly MP might weigh in with a helpful patsy. Rachel Boyack. Can I just clarify with the Minister that uh, <coughs> the use of contractors and consultants can be useful for unforeseen things such as pandemics, um, rebuilding roads after cyclones, um, cyclone events, and that the Minister's not actually able to predict whether we're going to have uh, further weather events or road closures or pandemics in the coming year. And so therefore... I haven't mentioned the fact that Ministers usually begin, like any submitter to a select committee, with an opening statement. They range widely and typically are used to put some facts on the ground as a footing for the Minister. And sometimes they're just there to use up time. I remember a hearing some years ago when Paula Bennett was Police Minister and she gave a shaggy dog of an opening statement. It was so long that there was barely a susan of time left for any questions at all. At the other end of the spectrum, Labour's Barbara Edmonds this week began like this. Um, I'm not actually going to provide um, opening comments. I've only got 25 minutes, so I'm open to having questions. I just want to put one thing on the record, though, and that's to acknowledge the Honourable Opito Sewell William Sewell, mm. who um, was the previous Minister of Pacific Peoples over the last five years. For a new minister, that's unusually confident. Talo Falava, I'm Johnny Blades. Repetition can be an effective tool for learning. In the classroom, sometimes a student must ask repeated questions of a teacher in order for the answer to gradually sink in. That's kind of how it felt this week in question time, as opposition MPs have become interested in a tool used in some hospitals in Auckland and Northland whereby prioritisation of non-elective surgery waitlists is partly based on ethnicity, alongside deprivation level, geographic location, time spent on the waitlist and clinical need which remains the primary consideration. However, the National and ACT parties have been zeroing in on this ethnicity factor, ostensibly concerned that Māori and Pacifica are moving up the waitlists unfairly. Uh, question number seven, Dr Shane Ritti. Thank you Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Health, how much weighting will be given to the ethnicity component of the equity adjuster for surgical waitlists? And what other parts of the health system, if, if any, has she looked at applying the adjuster to? To the first part of the question, the most influential factor on how a patient is scheduled is how severe their condition is as determined by their doctor. For a clinically high priority procedure, the other variables will have almost no weight in the algorithm and therefore would not influence the person's wait time. The second most influential factor is the number of days the patient has already been waiting. After that, the equity adjuster seeks to stop some groups from languishing on the long tail of the waitlist. Ethnicity, deprivation and being from a rural area are the other factors taken into account. As I have already said to that member, including in written questions, the weightings are dynamic, so a specific weighting for ethnicity cannot be given. 
the weighting of elements varies between clinical specialties to make sure that clinical priority remains the primary element. To the second part of the question, no, I have not looked at applying the equity adjuster to other parts of the health system beyond planned care. I remind the member that this initiative was developed by Northern Region clinicians and managers. Health Minister Aisha Verrill there answering one of several questions from National MP Shane Reti about the waitlist issue on Tuesday. He had another crack at asking her about the waitlists and question time the following day, immediately after a series of questions from the ACT Party's Brooke Van Velden to Dr Verrill on the issue. And earlier in that question time, the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins fielded a series of supplementary questions by ACT Party MPs about the waitlists, all following the exact same format. Is it acceptable to him that my five-year-old half-Chinese daughter could be placed lower on a surgical waitlist than someone else with the same clinical Is it acceptable to, to him that the migrant workers could be deprioritised on surgical waitlists because they don't have a Maori or Pacifica ancestry? Is it acceptable to him that as a Maori woman I could be placed higher on a surgical waitlist than someone of a different ethnicity. It may seem daft that they keep asking slight variations of the same question, but in a sense it's a necessary process for MPs to gain clarity in their own minds about the reality of a situation they've been speaking publicly on. In this case, Hipkins tried to help their understanding. Mr Speaker, the member misses the whole thrust of the debate that's been had in the last 24 hours. We are talking about people who have been on a waitlist for more than two years, where there is clear evidence that if someone is Māori, if, they are, if someone is Pacific Island, if they are from a rural community or are they from a low-income background, they have been languishing for longer on the waitlists than people who don't fit those descriptors. The fact that the health system is ensuring that those with clinical need who fit those four descriptors are not being discriminated against is surely something the member should welcome. Repetition is nothing new in question time. Indeed, for months, including this week, Nationals' Mark Mitchell has been asking the Police Minister, Ginny Anderson, the same question in question time and getting pretty much the same answer each time. Does she stand by her statement, it is my view that New Zealanders feel safer? If so, why? Uh, the Honourable Jimmy Mr Speaker, I stand by my full statement at that time uh, it was given. It is my view that New Zealanders feel safer with a government on track to deliver 1,800 extra police. Repetition is infectious and Mitchell's stock question to the police minister has this week also been taken up by Nicole McKee, who unsurprisingly got more or less the same answer. Whether the message gets through isn't clear because in a sense those asking the question don't want to be seen to accept the answer being given. But we can reasonably expect this question and probably those related to the surgery waitlist to feature again and again during the question time lineup in the remaining two months of the 53rd Parliament. You've been listening to The House, a programme made possible with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Tofasoi Four.